0: So, we're broadcasting here today from the University of Sussex in Brighton, UK. I'm here today with two American Studies students here, Claire Gerling and Glenn Houlihan. My name is Melissa Milevsky and I'm a lecturer here in American history. And we're here for the inaugural podcast of Trump Watch Sussex, a new podcast that's going to explore all things Donald Trump, give context on the election, and share a little bit about what it's like from this side of the Atlantic to be watching Donald Trump. So what are you finding that British students here at the University of Sussex are saying about Trump, or thinking about Trump? Um, are people following the news more? What's kind of the atmosphere here on campus?
1: Uh, I feel absolutely people are really interested, especially because Trump, especially, he's a he's a reality TV show star. You know, he's not a politician. And the scandals are so ridiculous. The, <laughs> the scandals are so ridiculous that I think people can't help but pay attention and, Obviously, with the election, you know, I I think I feel personally that maybe Trump mobilized a lot of the sort of movement within the left. You know, a lot of people seen what's happening, you know, with like the sort of rise of a lot of right-wing politicians. And, uh, yeah, I think it's sort of gotten people a little bit worried.
0: Well, let's go in... um to that, kind of thinking about the election that you've been mentioning. So we've just had um, the British election, a very surprising um, outcome um, with this um, hung parliament um, and um, Teresa Whitmay doing much um, worse than, than had been expected. So how does, how does that, um, you've been involved with campaigning, I know, Glenn, how does how that kind of figure into um, Trump in America?
2: Um, I think, in terms of Trump, it means he his only ally in in Europe has been greatly weakened, and I can only assume that her position is untenable as much as she will say otherwise um whether there'll be a conservative government, I mean that's another question, but I think whoever is her successor, um who I do not doubt will be um will be appearing in the next in the next few weeks and months um whether their personal relationship with um with Donald Trump will be anything as close as the one he enjoyed with um, Theresa May. Um, and in, in terms of actual... So I, I, I guess that kind of puts the um, the special relationship in jeopardy in a very direct sense. But in terms of looking inward towards Britain... I mean, I think, yeah, you've got you, people have always said that um, Jeremy Corbyn's are, is the is the British Bernie Sanders. And I think what you've seen is you've seen Bernie run incredibly close. And um, I mean, people can argue all they want, but he was kind of in, in many ways, he allegedly stitched up by the DNC. And then you could argue what would have happened in a, in a Bernie versus Trump election. Who knows? But what we did have was a May versus Corbyn election. And Corbyn absolutely confounded his critics. And I think he performed much, much better than even his own supporters would have admitted. I mean, the we personally, I was thinking, after a few weeks of campaign, I was if we limit May to a majority of 20, that's been a success for the left. But to actually r- rob her, or for her to throw it away, I mean, they're kind of the same thing. Um, for her to throw away a working majority and now be in this kind of DUP car crash coalition that's going to get absolutely nowhere in terms of pushing through policy, um, I think the left has absolutely stood up and been counted and you can say that Trump was absolutely a factor within that.
0: So I wanted to talk a little bit more about what it's been like for you personally to um, have Trump in office. How, how to start with, has this changed your consumption of media? What, how much you're following the news? Um, are you, like me, kind of glued to glued to the news um, all of the time? What are you? What are you finding?
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's completely changed the way that I consume media. Um, the vast majority of media that I consume is actually American media. I find that sort of studying American studies, it helps to sort of be immersed in that. Um, funnily enough, most of the media I get is from sort of like satirical news shows like The Daily Show and uh, Samantha B is a really good show and like late night talk show hosts. I mean, I find that they are almost as good of a source of news as anywhere else. You know, obviously I'll sort of go and I'll read like The Washington Post, The New York Times, things like that for more in-depth information. But I think... Uh, there's definitely a market for this kind of uh, shareable kind of thing, like uh, videos, like five-minute videos that can be shared on social media that sort of get the information out there, entertain you. I think there's a really good market for that, and that's definitely sort of how I consume my news these days.
0: Yeah. So has has your media consumption changed significantly with Donald Trump? Are you paying attention to the news more? Are you consuming it more than than you were before?
1: Yeah, I'm pretty much glued to CNN, to be honest. And uh, but it's interesting to watch because you know I I can tell where it's biased, and and, and I, I can sort of see the the biases in CNN. But I mean, it's just sort of the news comes so thick and fast that every single day there's something else that if you don't keep on top of it then you you literally can't keep up
0: it's exhausting it It really is
2: um yeah absolutely i mean in terms of quantity of news like the travel ban being blocked again was like seventh down and that happened um i think um basically this morning um so it's no it's absolutely crazy actually the sheer volume of it means that you've you've got to make sure that you if you're not immersed in it 24/7 you're going to miss something big which makes it kind of difficult but enthralling as um as a student and as, as someone who has a vested, a vested interest in American politics um I, it's just so fascinating but I mean we say this, but I I still think it's the same I think the present is always the most exciting time I think genuinely, 10 years mm-hmm. ago, if we'd have been having this discussion, we'd still be like, oh my gosh, there are a thousand things happening. I mean, how is, I think it would have been one of the, I think probably one of the Bush, how is he doing? How is this? How is the, there would have been a war abroad. There would have been something. Mm-hmm. But I think because it is Donald Trump, it just has this kind of weird, um, almost fetish towards it, where it's just, it's just, you, you're voyeuristic cause you can't look away. You want to, but you can't because there's, there's, there's the, 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 this man is kind of reality TV billionaires walked into the White House, um, and he's still there. And I think that really has a perverse charm to it.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's as much about Trump himself as the media. You know, the media are very complicit in sensationalising everything he does and sort of covering every tweet as if it was, you know, a a groundbreaking story. And, you know, a lot of criticism, I think, has been levied at cable news for, you know, the sort of breaking news and the sort of they just go over it again and again. Because the nature of the 24 news, the 24-hour news cycle is that they have to fill the time so it you know it behooves them to sort of go over everything and analyze everything and i think at a certain point that becomes counterproductive
0: So let's think now a bit about this huge divide in American media. So we've got the mainstream fake news, um, as Donald Trump would put it on the one hand, and on the other hand, we have news outlets like Fox, um, Breitbart, and they're saying completely different um, things. I just wanted to, here in England, what are you making of this huge divide and kind of how Americans are consuming their news, what kind of news they're they're getting?
1: Um, I think... uh... In terms of like cable news, I think if you look at somewhere like CNN or Fox, if you look at their average uh, viewers, it's, it's majority, it's like over 65s. And if you look at younger people, their majority of news is on social media. But you know that's not to say there isn't fake news on social media as well. It's so easy to just see a tweet or see a Facebook post and share it. and you know you want, you want your friends to see what you're talking about. But you know people don't really have the time in this day and age to fact check. And you know, even if they do, it's it's difficult. Not everyone's a journalist, you know. It's um, it's it's really difficult these days to sort of know what's true and sort of understand that you're getting an unbiased story.
2: Um, yeah, no, I've, I've been told by Doug to lighten it up a bit, but I can't hear. <laughs> it's going to be, no, be more cynicism because, um, yeah, I think it's difficult because I think this kind of whole fake news um debate um is underpinned by an assumption that we've we've kind of had a a free press before that which we haven't Mm. um there's just two things i want to quickly say i mean first of all you've got media barons um and i think mainstream press has always kind of had an artificial divide between left and right but i don't think you need to look at the editorial team you need to look at who owns it um and a, a quick bit on the fake news i think fake news is difficult because facebook has got probably as a direct result of trump and the american debate about it um, has got its own kind of tips for checking fake news. It kind of probably, mm-hmm. You've probably seen it, um, like 10 tips to check. And it kind of has this kind of awkward tone where it's trying not to be um, condescending. And it is a bit, but it's also important. But what we don't need is the websites themselves, like Facebook and Twitter, kind of policing what's fake news and what's not. Because then suddenly you've gone from one media baron who owns Print Press to the owner of Facebook or Twitter, deciding what is true and what's not, and you can say you, you could probably argue, how can Facebook have an agenda? But I think that's probably quite naive. Um, I mean, in the context of America, yeah, absolutely, it's a mess. But I mean, if you look at just to briefly come back to, I mean, the election here, I mean, you've got something in the Daily Mail being directly contradicted by the Guardian or the Mirror on a daily, hourly basis. This isn't a new thing. It's only new because we have the president tweeting and shouting about it. Um, so I think it's a very vital debate to have, but it shouldn't be. It's kind of got this really kind of modern kind of glow to it. It's like fake news. It's the twenty first century. It's like, well, no, we've had fake news for as long as news has existed. It's just in different forms. I think social media has really driven that.
1: Yeah, I think Donald Trump has a lot to answer for as well. In the, you know, a lot of people are talking about like a post truth era mm-hmm, and absolutely. about and about alternative facts. So I think he has a lot to answer for because I mean he contradicts himself within the same sentence. And he doesn't seem to care. He doesn't seem to have any shame about being caught lying. So I think that it's sort of a cult of personality in a way. And I think it's definitely he has a lot to answer for for that.
2: Yeah.
0: So along those lines of kind of thinking about how fake news isn't necessarily something that's so new in American history. I'm a historian. And so I wanted to just think a little bit. You've obviously been studying American history, American studies, American literature. How does Donald Trump fit for you into kind of this longer history? Is he complete anonymously? Is he, or is he, is this something that is kind of um, there's cycles? Is American history kind of cyclical, and you um, see this as perhaps another another cycle? How does how does he fit um, as a British student into kind of how you see America and American history?
1: It's a really good question.
2: <laughs> um, I think he's kind of I don't know, kind of fragments of um lots of the past, but with a real modern twist. I mean, he's a hybrid of a lot of things. I mean, my favorite of his many outstanding tweets was him calling out the American public on McCarthyism. And I think that was um that was incredible and rather bizarre because I think of all the kind of um historical kind of characters if if you will, there have been. I think McCarthy kind of um I think he reminds me of the essence of Trump. I mean, he putting a fear i mean, it's not it's not communists anymore. It's kind of it's Mexico. it's immigrants, it's china. it's the foreign other still exists, but they're in the country. They're not the other side of the world. um so I think yeah in that context absolutely but i think in in modern in modern say the last 30 years i don't think there is anyone that kind of quite comes close to him because he's an independent i mean he's he's publicly rubbished the republican party he clearly has no love for democrats but he's an independent running a very right wing um, republican cabinet and i think it's um it's fascinating to see which where he kind of falls on the ideological divide because of previous the previous five presidents. I don't know if he's even close to any.
1: Yeah, I think um, to come back to your point, Melissa, about like the cyclical nature of history. I think that uh, American history has a, a tendency to to sort of glorify its presidents and to sort of sanitize them. You know, even if you think about someone like Andrew Jackson, who's on the five dollar bill. Is that right, $5 bill? Uh, you know, he essentially was responsible for the genocide of Native peoples. Uh, think of somebody like FDR, who is always exalted as the, the one of the greatest presidents. You know, he put Japanese Americans in internment camps. You know, uh, and Obama, who a lot of liberals and a lot of progressives love Obama, but he also, there was a lot of civilians killed in drone strikes, for, for example. So I think it's a tendency in American history to sort of valorize presidents and to sort of look past their... Um, you know their 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 bad qualities. So I, th- I think Trump is so upfront, and I think Trump is so just what he is that I think it's sort of like a new a new paradigm for American history.
0: Yeah. No, I think those are are, are great answers. I wanted to turn now to thinking a little bit more about Trump's relationship um, with England. And there's been lots of um, kind of stories in the news as Trump disinvited um, from his state visit to England. Would Trump still possibly come? Is there kind of no longer still the same kind of special relationship between America um, and England living here in England. How do you think having America having Trump as president is, Perhaps shifting the relationship between these countries that have such a long kind of history together.
2: Um, I think I think it's fascinating. I think in terms of um, him potentially calling off his state visit because of protests um, is very indicative of the, of the kind of mood um, uh, among many parts of the country. I mean, I was at the Brighton protest, the anti-Trump protest, a few months ago. It feels it feels like years, um, and that was incredible. The turnout was fantastic. Um, uh, and I think there really is a mood within the public. I mean, you've got to be careful to not to overgeneralise. I mean, we're at a university. If you do like Trump, you're not going to tell anyone. This is this is the problem with occasionally with this kind of just this kind of echo chamber that you get both on social media and in the university um, kind of environment. Um, and it is important to look past that and be like, well, of course there's going to be people that support Trump within England. Whether the government does, as you said, the special relationship is another question. I think currently it's too volatile to say. I think we've got to reassess in six months, either after another election or whether this kind of informal um, coalition that's not a coalition works out. Because I mean, the whole world's looking at England as much as they're looking at Trump at the minute, and in both directions they they see instability. Um, but in terms, yeah, in terms of uh, popularity, I, I don't think there is a huge appetite for this kind of state state banquet visit, whatever you want to call it. Yeah,
0: interesting. Claire, is there anything you want to add?
1: Yeah, I just think it would be, uh, in terms of like the Brexit negotiations as well, because obviously when Trump was over with his visit, he had... Uh a little bit of a, a little bit of an issue with some of the european leaders and uh, a little bit a little bit yeah just to be kind to him for once, maybe. uh and you know angela merkel essentially saying that they can no longer rely on the united states so i think that's also a factor you know with the uk's precarious relationship with europe at the minute and trump's relationship with europe you know i think it's it's very very unstable definitely
2: yeah it's fascinating i think you've even got like a kind of a European base now, and both America and Britain, through their own doing, have kind of fractured away from it. Um, and yeah, you raise a fantastic point. I mean, we haven't really discussed Trump's relationship—not just the May, which is important—but I mean, we've got we've got um, twenty twenty-six other countries in, in, in the mm. EU to um, that he has to have a relationship with. And I mean, you've got NATO, you've got funding, you've got all these issues that he just kind of gets on a plane, arrives in in Europe, insults everyone, and gets back on a plane. <laughs> And, I mean, that can only work for so long as if you and your allies are in a position of power. And, I mean, the minute his, his basically sole close friend, um, unless you're going to count Putin, which you'll probably get on to, um, supports him, or, or they have the actual means to support him, it gets very difficult. And, um, yeah, Trump's relationship with European leaders, especially the French um, and German... Um, is really going to be interesting to see how that plays out in light of Brexit negotiations.
1: Yeah, it's very untenable. Absolutely. I think. Yeah. Do you think that
0: America's stature has significantly changed? Um, viewing America from the outside, viewing it kind of from from Britain, looking looking over um, the ocean back at a, at America, is America no longer kind of have the same kind of stature abroad that it, that it had before, or? Um, or, or does it? Does it still?
1: Uh, I would say absolutely. Yeah, I think I, I remember uh, the Obama election. and I remember the excitement in this country. And, you know, I'm sure I'm sure all over the world as well, not just because he was, you know, the first African-American president, which is obviously incredible, but just, you know, his campaign and the hope and the change. And I I really feel like people sincerely believe that. sincerely believed in the sort of Obama's promise. And I think that sort of going from that to Donald Trump, it's I think it's quite a shame. I think it's definitely damaged the America's standing in the world.
0: Well, one other thing that I'm interested in getting your perspective on is the Comey hearings, which is so it's been um, just a few days since the Comey hearings. And this has been something that so many of us have have just been kind of glued to the news, um, wondering what the repercussions of this all are going to be. I know that, Claire, you mentioned you actually watched all of the Comey hearings. I did. I'm (laughs) incredibly impressed that you (laughs) you sat through all of that. So what was your impressions watching all of this? What did you think? Uh,
1: Before the Comey hearings actually started, what I thought was interesting was CNN actually had a countdown clock three days before. So, just to sort of, down to the Comey hearings to to the Comey hearings, oh, and they had the cameras trained on the empty table essentially. So f- what that tells you about the media coverage. But, uh, yeah, the Comey hearings, I think they were incredibly built up by the media. You know, the word "watergate" was thrown around so many times, and a lot of people were pinning hopes of Trump being impeached on these hearings. And I think, when when something is built up to that extent, it's always going to be a letdown to some <laughs> regard. But, however, having said that, I think that this may be the beginning of the end for Trump. I think that if he is going to be impeached, that it is going to come back to what is in these Comey memos. And the White House is now sort of positioning it as it's Trump's word against Comey's, mm-hmm. which is an incredibly dangerous political tactic. You know, obviously James Comey has had his issues with the past, with the Hillary Clinton uh, email scandal, and with the there was another hearing with uh, about Huma bin emails, I believe. But in general, I think if we're talking about an issue of credibility with James Comey, James Comey, sorry, versus Donald Trump, then I think Trump is going to be in trouble.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, yeah, definitely. In some circles, but I, this thing is Trump's core support shrinking. We're being told on a daily basis mm. it is. But whether that's true is um, absolutely vital because Trump's core support were we to generalize, I'm sure, would not take this embodiment of the establishment, some kind of shady man in a suit that kind of been running the country Mm. um, for for years without any um, without any um, accountability. Um, I think Trump's word against his. A lot of people would take Trump's word. But as you're absolutely right, it's a very dangerous um, game to play. It's quite childish. And, I mean, if you've you've got something to hide, he said, she said, they said, is never the best way of acquitting yourself. I think they really are stacking up.
1: Yeah,
0: absolutely. So just one final question for the two of you. I'm wondering what you think of kind of this resistance that's growing in America uh, towards Donald Trump. We're just getting news of this new kind of another court um, saying that Trump's travel ban is unconstitutional. Trump's obviously not helping himself out there with his tweets about the travel ban. But as some pe- people in America are mobilizing, um, at least in part, against Trump, there's these alt Department of Education, alt um, kind of uh, parks, um, Twitter accounts that are, that are coming forth. And so what, what have you noticed? What do you think about um, how much people can actually um, do who do oppose Donald Trump?
1: Uh, I mean, I think the, the clearest example of that would be the Women's March, which I believe was at the day after the inauguration, which was the, um, I wanna say it was like the biggest gathering of, you know, of protesters in, in American history, you know, and that was just for one issue. That was just for sort of women's issues, you know. I think that sort of says it all, but I think it's, it's keeping up that momentum, which I think is really important and it's. People are losing faith in the Democratic Party, which is, you know, which is kind of troubling. Well, you know, not necessarily good or bad, but you know, I think it's being able to organize and sort of actually like capitalize on that momentum that they have.
2: Yeah, I think we've got um, a lot of grassroots um, activism um, really gaining a foothold in a kind of national um, public consensus, um, because um, yeah, people are understanding that if they want things to change, they're going to happen from 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 within and people are absolutely going to the streets and voicing their concern i mean whether that will actually work within the system is a different thing i mean the courts absolutely have been a integral part of this kind of trump resistance not that necessarily the courts are you know have this kind of agenda anti-trump agenda but i mean what they're doing is upholding the constitution and if if you agree with the kind of i don't even know with the idea that the constitution and its checks and balances works then i think Looking at the courts, that's where it's absolutely happened. And I mean, almost ironically, I mean, the Freedom Caucus uh, as effective opposition um, as the Democrats, if not more so, um, to Trump. I mean, he's already been embarrassed on the floor um, of the House um, many times, especially with the with the pulling of the Health Care Act. Um, and I mean, it's just there's just so many elements to it because you look at Trump. He, we keeps pitting like his Democrats and liberals who are against him, but there are so many people within his own party who want nothing more than to see him, you know, resign. I think probably be the least embarrassing thing for the Republican Party. Um, and I mean you, you we've got to look at legislation, and see how is he going to get key um, manifesto, dare I say, it, pledges or ideas or shouts um, through? And at the minute, it doesn't seem particularly um, likely.
1: I mean, I think, regardless of what he does, he will say that it was a success. Uh, I yeah, think definitely. I, I, yeah, i I, I believe a success. I believe it was yesterday. He had a cabinet meeting, and it was essentially them all going around and stroking his ego was how it was reported. and he he said something to the effect of no president other than FDR has had such a legislative success in the first few months of his presidency, which is, Again, it comes back to this post-truth thing because it's patently false. It's provably false. It's, it, you know, but Trump doesn't care. And I think a lot of people get worn down to that and people get worn down to the idea of maybe there is isn't objective truth. I don't know. you know. So I think it's, I, I think a resistance against Trump, uh, against Trump's personality, against Trump's tendencies to lie and de- to exaggerate, I think that's a an important part of the resistance is anything.
2: Yeah, definitely. Breaking breaking down this grand illusion that he himself has constructed. Yeah. It might be one piece at a time, but um, I think it is going to start start building up. And my personal current prediction would be a resignation definitely before an impeachment, but potentially without the threat of one. Because I think he's, he's a man who's been used to bossing people around, being told yes, thank you for everything. Mm-hmm. um that he's correct and y- you can tell like some of his tweet he is genuinely frustrated he doesn't understand why people don't want to help him don't want to help the country um he's just so embroiled in his own kind of um consciousness that he can't seem to look past that
1: yeah i mean it, it, he is a megalomaniac mm-hmm. essentially you know and I, I i do think that if he does resign he will find some way to try and spin it in his Someone own advantage spoke, yeah. absolutely you know and i think that that's one of the things that frustrates his critics that even when they attack him with facts and with you know objective truths and he just it it doesn't matter he doesn't care
0: he's always able to get out of it uh, absolutely
1: yeah. i think that's what frustrates so many people
0: well, on a lighter note, since some of this has been <laughs> a bit depressing, I, we wanted to, I wanted to, I know Claire's prepared um, a quick quiz um, to test um, Glenn, who mm-hmm. didn't actually somehow miss the, um, <laughs> somehow miss the Kafefe uh, tweet.
1: I think he was the- campaigning for, for Labour, so that's okay. You can forgive him <laughs> yes, for that. Uh,
2: yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's an excuse. So. Yeah. Uh,
0: so we're trying to catch him up to speed on this Kafifi. however you pronounce C- it.
1: Kafefe? I think Fefe. I think it's up in the air.
0: Uh, so we're trying to catch him up to speed. And so what we've done is Claire has three different um, headlines, and they're from three different sources. One is from Breitbart News. One is from Hillary Clinton's own official Twitter account. And one is from the failing New York Times, as Donald Trump would put it. <laughs> um, so we're going to say these three, and you guess, which is mm-hmm. Breitbart, which is Hillary Clinton, and what is the New York Times?
1: All right, so you ready? Mm-hmm. Number one, a meme is born. Donald Trump, cafe typo, breaks the internet. So it's Breitbart News, Hillary Clinton's official Twitter, or the failing New York Times.
2: Oh, that's got to be the failing New York Times.
1: This one is, or should we get the answers at the end? Or Go ahead and uh, that is actually Breitbart news. No, that is Breitbart no. news. Donald Trump breaks the internet. Yeah, uh, you know, that's, as I said, it wasn't so much an article; it was just a collection of the memes and the reactions on Twitter.
2: Well, so I thought I thought Breitbart might be making a making uh, I don't know, trying to find a way of not making light like of it. Making some serious policy issue, but no, clearly they. No, they were, I think, I think <laughs> oh, they were fantastic. portraying
1: it as, you know, look how funny the president is. You oh, know, in a yeah. positive way. A positive way. They were positive like, you humor, know, that makes sense. Know, he broke the internet like Kim Kardashian. You know, I think they they were sort of. A very lo- different ways,
2: but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a
1: mental image, it did not mean. Thank you very much. Uh, so, moving on. Uh, so, number two, people in Kofefe houses shouldn't throw Kofefe. So, that is either. Hillary Clinton's official Twitter account or The New York Times.
2: So I just want that to be Hillary, so I'm going to have to say that. It is. It oh, is. fantastic. That is, that
1: is Hillary. I think that's the most iconic one since uh, Delete Your Account. I think that's the most iconic tweet. <laughs> uh, I just realized we, we sort of spoiled the last one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so the last one is from Donald Trump's favorite uh, news organization. Uh, and on the 132nd day, just after midnight, President Trump had at last delivered the nation to something approaching unity. In bewilderment, if nothing else, the state of our union was, kafefe, though obviously taking a little bit of a more
2: poetic, put
1: po- a bit of poetic stance, Yeah, I like that. you know, acknowledging that he delivered some unity towards the nation. If if that unity was bewilderment, <laughs> you know, they're giving him credit where it's due. I guess.
2: Um. Well, that was excellent. I got yeah. I got one one out of three. In a way, maybe <laughs> yeah, two. Yeah. I don't know how you class the third one? Yeah. Um. But no, that was excellent. <laughs>
0: Thanks so much for talking with me today. It was really interesting to hear your perspectives as British students on on what's happening in America. And I know both of you are heading off um, in the next few months to America, so Claire's going to Occidental in California, Glenn's going to be at UMass Amherst, um, for both for the next year, and Mm -hmm. it'll be very interesting to kind of hear your perspectives. I think we're going to try to do another podcast where you're going to be broadcasting what your experiences are like from America, um, and as a British student, what you're encountering there. That's it, though, for today for our first uh, podcast. But look out for another podcast um, about Trump again very soon. Thank you.
2: Thank you.
1: Thanks. Thanks.